What happens when we die? What happens to our memories and consciousness when our bodies cease to be? In the end, is it the things we did and the people we loved that give our lives meaning? Shehan Karunatilaka is a Sri Lankan author known for his novels dealing with the history, politics, and folklore of his home country. Raised in Colombo, he studied in New Zealand and has worked in London, Amsterdam, and Singapore. His first novel, Chinaman, The Legend of Pradeep Matthew, won the Commonwealth Book Prize, the DSC Prize for South Asian Literature, the Gratian Prize, and was voted the second greatest cricket novel of all time by Wisden. His second novel, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida, won the 2022 Booker Prize. Shan Karuna Telika, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have the chance to speak with you. And your book, which won the Booker Prize, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida, this is just a surprising and interesting ghost story. But at the same time, it really invites readers to consider those big philosophical questions like what happens to us after we die? Yeah, you're right. It was surprising. No one was more astonished than me because I've been writing this for the last seven years. And I'm going to read the opening chapter. So this is where Mali Almeida, this dead war photographer, atheist, nihilist, convinced that there wasn't such a thing as the afterlife or any cosmic plan, wakes up to find himself dead, but also find himself in a very strange afterlife. So this is him orienting himself. You wake up with the answer to the question that everyone asks. The answer is yes. The answer is just like here, but worse. That's all the insight you'll ever get. So you might as well go back to sleep. You were born without a heartbeat and kept alive in an incubator. And even as a fetus out of water, you knew what the Buddha sat under trees to discover. It's better to not be reborn. Better to never bother. Should have followed your gut and croaked in the box that you were born into. But you didn't. So you quit each game they made you play. Two weeks of chess, a month in Cub Scouts, three minutes in rugby. You left school with a hatred of teams and games and morons who valued them. You quit art class and insurance selling and master's degrees, each a game that you couldn't be asked playing. You dumped everyone who ever saw you naked, abandoned every cause you ever fought for, and did many things you can't tell anyone about. If you had a business card, this is what it would say. Mali Almeida, photographer, gambler, slut. If you had a gravestone, it would say Malinda Albert Kabbalana, 1955 to 1990. But you have neither, and you have no more chips left at this table, and you now know what others do not. You have the answer to the following questions. Is there life after death? What's it like? It's very daunting to try to explain that transition, but it's more than that. In your Booker acceptance speech, you mentioned just some of the murdered journalists in Sri Lanka. And the Seven Moons of Malia Made is more than an elegy or showing us how we can affect change in our lives or even our afterlife. Just tell us what were some of your thoughts as you set out to write this book? Well, it was a long process, and I think it takes just as long to write a bad book as it does a award-winning book. And this one took several drafts and uh, several false starts. But I really started with the idea that I wanted to write a ghost story. I'd written a sports story before my first novel, Chinaman, was about cricket. And I was really sick to death of talking about cricket for the last 10 years. So I thought I'll do something completely different. I want to write a ghost story. And this was around the time of the end of Sri Lanka's civil war. And even after this 30-year war, which had gone on for most of my lifetime, we were convinced it would never end. When it ended, what I found disappointing was it wasn't really opportunity to heal and address the wrongs. It was just a lot of infighting about whose fault it was, how many people died, how many civilians died, how many atrocities were committed. And it was just different parties laying blame on each other. No one really accepting responsibility. For me, I just thought, well, the living clearly don't have a clue. What if we asked the dead? What if the dead could speak? And if we had allowed the ghosts of Sri Lanka's past, what would they have to say about the country, about what it did to them and where the country's headed? So that's where I started with. But I wasn't maybe brave enough to write about the end of the war. And even now, writing about that is a contentious subject. So I went back in the 80, 89, which I remember as the worst time in Sri Lankan history. And even though it's not that long ago, no one talks about the past. No point bringing these things up. You're just going to still have old wounds. So that's why I went back and I researched 1989, 1990, and all the unsolved murders and the electric atrocities. And that's where I really began just researching the victims of the war. Basically, I turned them into ghosts and I allowed them to speak. So um, I guess I was wanting to write about the final phase, the last two years of the war and all the casualties and all the things that happened. But it's a contentious subject, even bringing those things up now. So that's why I went back to 1989. 
Unfortunately, there are many periods in Sri Lankan history that I could have set the story in. But I went back to 1989 because I thought it was sufficiently back in the past, but also most of the bad guys and the good guys, they're all dead. And anyone who could take offense was dead. So I felt free writing about this period in history, a period really needs addressing. So you mentioned not only the many journalists who've died, which your main character is, Mali, but the many civilians during this civil war, which is estimated at 80,000 to 100,000 deaths. And maybe that's not even a fair accounting. Yeah, that figure is over 30 years of war. Is that the figure? Yes. I'd say that'd be pretty accurate. Again, we don't have proper death counts. A lot of the parents of the victims are still asking for answers, still holding up pictures of their missing children, and there are no answers forthcoming. I think with Sri Lanka, we tend to move to the next catastrophe. We just had an economic crisis. So the post-war period, it seemed like it was a time for rejoicing. It wasn't a time for looking back at our history. But I felt the fact that we don't talk about this stuff means that these wounds don't heal. It's a privilege to be able to say, okay, these are bygones, let's forget about him. But there are many Sri Lankans for whom these wounds are still very raw and unaddressed. Of course, I wasn't really looking at political engineers. I just want to write a great ghost story and a great murder mystery. I think also Mali Almeida's in the afterlife negotiating. He's got seven wounds before he walks into the light to wherever he's going next. And so he has that time period to find out how he died and also to make sense of his life and his relationships and so on. So really, that was my focus. But of course... On the way, he meets a lot of these ghosts. He meets a lot of the victims of Sri Lanka's wars and they start talking. And they end up talking quite a bit. So I think my ramblings got mistaken for literature and that's why we're here. But I was just setting out to write a good old classic whodunit. And I think it is quite a conventional whodunit, except the only difference is the detective is also the corpse. That's the main difference. I think him being a war photographer was important because she was, I wouldn't say apolitical, but not really affiliated to any side. He was in the employ of the Sri Lankan army, the Tamil tiger separatists, the Marxists, the foreign arms dealers, and journalists. So he was in cahoots with all the different sides. So this was also good for me. You know, you have your corpse, you have five or six likely suspects, and that's really your convention for the murder mystery. So that's really where I started. But of course, once I started writing, I had to get deeper into what was the conflict and what were these different sides and what were their agendas. So that's where the political element came in. But uh, yeah, I was just trying to write a nice girl story. That was really all that I set out to do. Well, indeed, because we sometimes assume that the dead or ghosts might have perfect knowledge and they're these observers floating above life. If that is what we believe in our spiritual tradition or as we speculate on what happens, we don't know. But of course, you put forward that the dead don't necessarily have perfect knowledge, particularly during their transition. They're immigrants to a new existential way of life. So Mali's trying to discover who the killer is. As you say, he's apolitical. I mean, he is political, but he's a witness and maybe to right wrongs and unearth a national scandal, maybe to be more righteous and more virtuous than he had been in life. He realizes some things. Yes. Yeah, so perfect memory was something I was interested in because, you know, you get in a car, instead you wake up in hospital with bandages on your head. You don't even be that violent. You have a bit of a hard night and you drink too much and you wake up wondering how the hell you got home. So these gaps in memory connected to intoxicants and trauma, it's well documented. So I thought it made sense that from the point of view of the drama that he doesn't remember. He only remembers bits. He has no idea how he died. He knows that many people would have wanted him dead and that creates the conflict and the intrigue. But also he misremembers his own life, as I think we all do, his relationships. I think he comes to realize that he wasn't very nice to the people who loved him. He treated all of them poorly. His mother, he's got daddy issues. And most importantly, his girlfriend and his boyfriend, the people closest to him, looks back on those relationships. And I think that really forms the heart of the book because there's a lot of moving parts to this. One is war photographer trying to solve his own murder, but also as a war photographer, he took a lot of photographs that were never published and are sitting in a shoebox under his bed and he wants the world to see them. So that adds the political thriller idea that he wants to make sure that someone uncovers these photographs and shows them to the world because he somewhat idealistically or naively believes that if Colombo, he lives in Colombo, it's where I grew up, the capital of Sri Lanka, we were sort of insulated from the war. And I think... This is true for most populations that grow up in war-torn countries. The war happens in a contained area, hopefully, and people get on with life. That's what I experienced growing up in the 80s and 90s. So he believes that maybe if the world could see what was really happening in the north and east of Sri Lanka, maybe they would stop the war. So these are his ambitions doing this. But I think really 
he also comes to realize that to look back on his own life and probably the spend. I mean, he dies in his mid-30s. And I suspect that I'm not betraying any of my beliefs. But when you go, unless you live to a ripe old age, you're probably surprised. You're probably going, oh, well, I'm 45. I had so much to do. What was the point of all of that? So I think there's a bit of that going on where the ghosts are trying to make sense of what the meaning of their brief time on earth was. But also he has a bigger agenda, solving his murder, showing the photographs. But I think in the end, the journey, without giving spoilers away, but the journey Mali takes, I think, is also a journey of the heart as well. And uh, making peace with the ones who loved him and who he loved. Yes, hopefully, depending when in death comes for us, that it can be a peaceful transition or that we may come to realizations and relationships with those close to us before our death, or then sometimes, you know, catch up with that, if that's something that can happen on another celestial plane after. So... How do you feel Mali was transformed by his death? Or how do you feel that we are transformed by our death? Well, I think Mali had to kind of re-look at his own values. I mean, this character, I, mean, I spent time with him over seven years and he really evolved and I got to know him. And I'm not even sure he's all that likable. Even my editor said, not very likable. What can we do about that? And I'm not sure a protagonist of a novel needs to be likable. He or she needs to be compelling and the reader just needs to at least understand where they're coming from. And I think Mali, who had grown up in this Colombo bubble and found this one thing that he was good at, taking these photographs that no one else could take. And so he did this and he ran a lot of risks. This is why it was important than him being a gambler as well, because he didn't believe in any religion or any deity. He just thought it was all probabilities and calculated risks. And that's why every time he goes into a war zone, he just calculates risks. And so therefore, when he ends up in this very strange afterlife that resembles a Sri Lankan or South Asian bureaucracy where... They're just confused spirits wandering around trying to get their passport visa stamped so they can walk into the light, but they have to get their ears checked and their sins counted and all of this. And I think being thrust in this process, he has to actually realize, well, it seems that there is a system to it and I have to now make sense of my life, which I didn't account on doing. He was very much a hedonist and now he had to understand the decisions he made and whether he made the right ones. So I think that was Mali's experience. I have no idea what happens and what we're in for. But this is just my imagining that it's like we have this comforting delusion that when we close our eyes for the last time and open them again, all will be revealed, that the universe will make sense, our lives will make sense, God will reveal herself to us and tell us her name and it'll all make sense. But to me, at least for this, and growing up in Sri Lankan chaos, it made more sense that the afterlife was chaotic, that the afterlife was just as confusing as life down here and just as disorganized and just as arbitrary. Even though I think you find out that there is a system and that karma works. We say God moves in mysterious ways. I think karma also works maybe over several lifetimes. So you may not be avenged in this lifetime or you may not receive your rewards in this lifetime, but you eventually do. But this is just stuff I imagined and I borrowed from Eastern religions, Western Judeo-Christian tradition, but I also borrowed quite heavily from horror movies and near-death experiences where a lot of survivors of flatlining, they come back with very similar stories of seeing a light, being encouraged to walk towards it, having a spirit guide telling them what to do. I think it owes a lot to horror movies as well. Beetlejuice has been mentioned as an influence. I wasn't consciously aware of that, but yeah, I can see the similarities as well. But I think for the purpose of the book, it was more about Mali's. He's in there was seven days, how he looks back on his life and makes sense of it. There is a journey. It's a grim, cynical, realistic book. But I do think it moves towards some sort of redemption or some sort of hope. Well, I hope it does. We want things to be uncovered for Mali. I think that there's also this speculation that maybe life itself, we think we go through life with our eyes open, but then in fact, we might be sleepwalking our lives and our eyes are closed. And then the moment of death, maybe it's a kind of opening. And of course, opening our eyes is painful to consider because we're always trapped in our perspective. And that's the other thing you can perhaps explore other perspectives and then understand our insignificance or the roles that we've played that weren't always virtuous or good. When you said that, I think here, other sources I researched were people who go on psychedelic trips or people who have these complex brain surgery where they wake up with this sudden awareness. What could be influencers? I mean, there's many, but Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams. I mean, there's many great things in that book. And I referenced the number 42 several times as a tribute. But she also, I think, the biggest torture chamber, and I hope I'm remembering this right, in the universe was where you go into this chamber and it shows you your significance in relation to the vastness of the universe. And most people see how insignificant they are and they go mad. 
And this was played for comic effects. Where Zaybot Beeblebrooks goes in there and he's got such a big ego that he comes out there smiling. But also I found reports that people in these psychedelic experiences or near-death experiences, they suddenly realized that they are a small part of this big, beautiful whole. And they somehow feel almost liberated by that or certainly comforted that little tiny problems, their little wars, their little personal relationships, really not meaningless, but pale in significance to what they are part of. So there was that element as well that you're part of a bigger thing. I don't think it has to be a scary, depressing experience. It can be quite an enlightening experience. And like you quite beautifully said, you open your eyes and you actually see yourself in relation to the whole cosmic plan. And maybe, yeah, you're not going to be so petty and so irritable and so cynical after all. I sometimes feel that we can touch, as you mentioned, like experimentation with psychedelics or states of deep meditation, kind of retreats into nature. And I sometimes mm. feel we can also touch on this supernatural awareness or disembodied state when we dream. You know, that's the thing. We don't have to be ourselves. Last night I was an octopus and it made perfect sense to me that I was an octopus. But And then I wake and I realize I'm not. But then maybe we are on some essential level. What a wonderful dream that was. I wish I had that. I don't dream that much. I guess I dream so much while I'm awake that now I just have a long, heavy sleep. But yeah, octopuses, my son's into his sea animals and he told me that octopuses have three hearts. Did you feel that? The burden of three hearts? I know what that does. Either you have a lot of empathy or a lot of trauma. I don't know. No, that's interesting. They're amazing in terms of how they can transform. And I think the hearts might help with that. It's so strange because so much of our perception, and this is just a tangent, but as a war photographer at Mali, so much of our perception is defined by the aperture through which we internalize what we see in our consciousness. So we have two eyes and this forms us. And so we often don't think about how our bodies actually shape our thoughts. Our bodies, our locations, and where we are located. I think bringing back to Mali and bringing back to myself. I mean, I grew up in a middle class family, English speaking, which is important. I think there's a big language divide in Sri Lanka. English speaking, middle class family in Colombo during this terrible war. You know, bombs went off and there were assassinations and checkpoints and school will close down. I don't think we really experienced the full trauma of some. Since researching this, I Talk to people who grew up not that far, a bus ride from where I was, Jaffna, the north of Sri Lanka ship, roughly like a hand. I was here and north and the east was where the war was happening. And those people who grew up there, of my generation, maybe similar background, had much more traumatic experiences and are lucky to be alive. And often I think you have that survivor guilt that you think I'm lucky to have been born here and to be born a Sinhalese in this war. If I was born a Tamil in Jaffna, who knows what my experience might have been. So I think fiction helps you at least do that because you're right. We are caught up in our own views and, you know, you know how divided your country is and I know how divided my country is and every debate, everyone just sees their own perspective. And I think perhaps writing during the pandemic, I became aware of how non-essential writers are. I mean, I can write a sonnet about the pandemic, but you know, it's not quite as useful as teachers or nurses or delivery people or essential service providers. But I think the one thing that fiction writers can do is we can allow a reader to see the world from a different perspective. And for me, that's important. Sri Lankan literature, I think that's the main part it plays for me. For me, I want to read stories from the war, from Jaffna, from the victims of the war. And I think that's really the only way we move forward as a country because you can have politicians doing all sorts of reforms and everything. But I think really we need to, at a fundamental level, understand the other and understand what we did to each other and make peace with that. So I think maybe as non-essential as we are, maybe that's a role that fiction writers can play. It allows you to see the world from different perspectives. As a writer, I think that's what I feel. The gift is, before I won a Booker Prize, I was like every other writer, writing in obscurity, in Colombo, trying to make a living. And you do it because I think it is also this ability to read other experiences and try and communicate those. So maybe we aren't as useless after all. Well, I should say also there's many different kinds of writing and you've also written advertising and journalism. I believe that storytellers, if we can unite it under that umbrella, are essential and often they're mobilized for good and also for journalism. So I think that's also bearing witness and that's hugely important. But also the stories that we tell ourselves and they're told, like you've mentioned how geography informs your destiny. And so a story that's passed on from generations where the people who live on this side of the mountain, we hate the people on the other side of the mountain. 
And I don't know why, but I've just been told this story since I was born. So I'm just going to fall in line. I think to reclaim our power as artists. And I want to bring in later because we are introducing a new series, which is about the importance of the humanities and AI and these future technologies that the humanities will really help save us from some of these new challenges that we face in these new technologies. So we can bring that in later, but I just don't want you to put that on huge report. That's a big right. topic, but yeah, let's get it through. Yeah, but tell me a little bit about your different writing experience in advertising or journalism and how that helped prepare your research or help you understand Molly's experiences. I started off playing in rock bands, wanting to be a songwriter. We had a typical adolescent male fantasy. Sadly, I didn't have much musical talent, but then I drifted into advertising and that was a career that allowed me to grow my hair and go to work in t-shirt and sneakers. But also it had me writing every day. With advertising, I still practice. I still freelance. I've been doing it for 20 years. I think you're telling, I wouldn't say lies, but you're telling half truth. So you're massaging the truth in order to get people to change behavior, by products and all of that. You're basically telling lies, but trying to make them convincing and authentic. But I think the fiction writer is the opposite. It's barely obvious. You're telling these stories with talking animals and demons. Even if you're not writing a fantastical tale, you're saying that this thing didn't happen. But within those lies, you're trying to communicate some truth, something that's real, something that happened. And so my day job was in advertising. And my typical day was, yeah, I'd, I'd go to work, do my copywriting work, and then I'd come back home, read a bit, wake up early the next morning and write my novel. And I did that for the last 10 years. And I think after the pandemic, we all started working in our pajamas, right? Which writers were doing for centuries. But now everyone works in their pajamas from home. I was grateful to have a day job that allowed me to sit in my pajamas and earn a living. But also it took the pressure off the fiction writing because this didn't have to be a bestseller so that my children could go to school. That was taken care of so I could be as free as I wanted when I was writing. But now I also do travel writing. I will call myself a journalist because I think I like to bend the truth or mix fact and fiction. And this doesn't make for a good journalist, even though many who claim to be journalists practice this as well. So I was a travel writer where it's a bit more nebulous. But I think any writing is hard. I think the lesson that I got is that the article or the short story or the novel or the song is not going to write itself. You have to turn up every day and you turn up day in, day out. And maybe after a few months, you get a couple of pages. And I think... That's what advertising really taught me, that you can't wait for inspiration. If the client's coming on a Wednesday and it's Tuesday afternoon, you have to come up with something and you have to find techniques to be creative on a daily basis. So this was, I think, a big lesson because I think there's this misnomer among people who haven't written novels that you just sit down, inspiration strikes you, the muse sits on your shoulder and whispers this and you just type and then six months later you have a novel. But of course it's not this. It's six months, it's six years of turning up every day and banging your head against the desk and uh, watching the story evolve. And like I said, this story, three false starts. I wrote three novels basically, which were not so good. And then I wrote a fourth that was obviously all right, but that's the game. I enjoy doing it. I enjoy reading. I enjoy writing. I enjoy sitting in my pajamas and not having to cut my hair. So it was a good career, but I didn't expect it to pay off so early. I was in it for the long haul. I was expecting my seventh or my 13th book to make it big. The second one's done it. So I'm very grateful for that. But the third book's not going to write itself either. I know. And I've started the third book. And it's going to be tough and it's going to go through as much heartbreak and banging your head against a desk. But ultimately you keep at it and you eventually get there. The title of that third book is called A Hard Act to Follow. Yes. I asked ChatGPT. I went to ChatGPT and said, how do you follow up a winning novel? Give me some ideas. I gave slightly better prompts than that, but so far, no one's been able to help me. I don't think there's a shortcut to that. Yes. You know, it's, it's scary, the chat GBT, and we could go into that. But of course, the chat GBT yeah. is big plagiarizer of everything that we've been feeding LBCS. So I don't feed mm. it. Don't feed the monster. <laughs> So you mentioned people, they imagine that creativity or writing is like, oh, you kind of are dreaming and it comes to you like a voice, like a vision. In the story, there's ghosts who go around whispering just like that. You know, we think the idea is in our head, but it's something that's been whispered by vengeful ghosts. Describe that process because it's actually fascinating. So this was the decision to write this in the second person. A lot of people ask me about that. This, it's a very unusual thing to do. I've written short stories in the second person and I've read a few and there's not many examples of this technique. And the reason I opted for that is I was trying to problem solve right here. You can't interview a ghost. We have no idea what the afterlife looks like. So 
you kind of have to imagine. And one of the challenges was, what does a disembodied voice sound like? A disembodied narrator? Because normally you can describe what they look like or have them in situations. But opening chapter, the narrator's body is being chopped up and chucked in a lake. I was wondering, what does he sound like? And I tried it in the third person and the first person, but I used the second person because I figured that if anything survives the death of your body, it's perhaps the voice in your head. And the voice in my head is in the second person. I don't know about your head or anyone else's heads, but in mine, it's the second It's almost like someone else telling me you should have worn a better shirt for this interview and you should have read a better chapter. You should have done this. And it's almost like someone else talking to me. And I tried this technique and I did. Madhuri Almeida also questions, who is the you telling the story? And this is addressed, if you look at the audiobook. Shivanta Vijay Singh did a tremendous job and I didn't meet him until after he'd done his fabulous work. But when he narrates the um, Seven Moods of Mali Almeida, the second person narrator is in a slightly different register to the Mali Almeida in flashback who lived from 1950 to 1990. The Mali Almeida in flashback is a slightly different voice to the you narrating it. And I think the you narrating it, it is Mali, but it's maybe... Mali's soul over the centuries, Mali's conscience, it's something else. And I think in the book, and this is something I've often considered, what is the voice in your head? Who is this person who's saying, you should have done this, why did you do that? Who is that person? Is that you? Or are you the person listening to that voice? And Mali also wonders, because we always think that our thoughts originate from us. We've all had experiences where we've done something or said something and we've thought, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? What made me do that? So Mario also ponders, is the voice in my, the you telling the story, is that me or is someone else? Is there a spirit? Because he observes this, that spirits, because they're so bored. Because I have to also figure out what do ghosts do all day? Because we know in the horror movies, ghosts turn up and be scary, but that's just like a fraction of their day. What do they do for the rest of the time, rest of the 364 days? And so this idea that they're so bored that they walk around following humans and whispering thoughts in their ear, which they mistake as their own thoughts. This was an explanation for me why Sri Lanka and why the world seems to get itself in such catastrophes every time. Maybe it's not because this country is cursed or that it's corrupt or anything. Maybe there's a lot of spirits wandering out, whispering bad ideas in people's ears. But Mali questions then, and I question that as well. What is the you? Are you the thing that is originating these ideas? Or are you the person listening to these ideas? You brought up meditation and meditation is really about taking a step back and seeing all these thoughts fluttering around your brain and just taking a breath and just letting them flow and choosing which thought that you follow, which is a very simple thing, but it's easier said than done. And so I think that was really what I was trying to get at. And I don't know if there's resolutions in the book, but the idea that maybe are your thoughts your own or is someone else whispering them to you and how do you deal with that information? This is pretty heady stuff for a murder mystery. When I made the decision, and I think you write by instinct, and I tried the second person because I remember the Choose Your Own Adventure books that I read as a kid, which were all in the second person. I just bought a bunch of them on eBay and I read them. They're not as clever as I remember them. I was 10, 11, 12, but I do remember it was always you. You're sitting, you're a spy, you're a cowboy in the Wild West, you're doing these things. And I wrote by instinct, but it's only later once I got dealing with the books that I was questioning. Who is the you and who is the I and all of this stuff? Yeah, it's true. I sometimes feel that, well, I can see that there might be malevolent or a malign ghost, but I sometimes feel that I trust more when it prepares one's mind for an idea or a creative thought to come from outside and you're like a vessel, I feel like it's stronger and it has a momentum and that our thoughts can be, we can go wrong when we're the only author. It's like our ego contaminates it. So I feel like there's a natural order that one becomes a vessel to. That's my own belief. That's a wonderful way to think of it. Shoyden Elizabeth Gilbert, who I'm a big fan of, not just Eat, Pray, Love, I love all her books. She made this point in one of her dead talks that if we think of ourselves as the author, and I don't think of myself, because I'm working all through my 20s and 30s in advertising, you're strapped for an idea and you're stressed and there's a big meeting tomorrow. And then when you're young, you'll do all sorts of crazy stuff like drinking gin in the morning and trying to kickstart this idea. But I think now, having done it for so long, I realize the best thing you can do is put it aside, go to sleep, go and have a good long sleep and just trust that the idea will arrive. And that's the thing that now I consider the idea is external to you. And if the stuff is not working on a page, it means maybe you haven't read enough. Maybe you're not in the right frame of mind. Maybe you haven't had enough sleep. Maybe you just need to do some breathing, do some meditation, just get away from it. 
but that the idea will arrive, will come to you and you will receive it. And this idea of antennas, I know people use antennas anymore. I remember trying to tune a TV, putting a coat hanger on my TV set in the early 80s and trying to pick up a cricket match. But the notion that the idea is out there, but you just need to be in a state to receive it. That's a very comforting thought because it, it takes the onus off you. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be this big creator. You just have to read and keep yourself healthy and keep yourself open and the idea will arrive. And funny thing is it usually does. Usually like two hours before the deadline, it arrives to you. Then you're typing. I write travel articles. I read some, it's about advertising work. And it's always the same case. You have this panic and then you're like, they're going to find out. I'm going to make a fool of myself. And then you say, no, calm down, breathe, go to sleep. And you wake up the next morning suddenly. It's not fully formed. You have to do the work, but there's a pathway. And you're like, okay, maybe this is the idea. And you work through it. I think this is a very healthy way of thinking about this. You're not the originator. The ideas are there and you just receive them. Although Shehan Karuna Tilaka's novel, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida, is described as partly a murder mystery and even begins with the chapter titled Answers, it would be wrong to conclude that it revolves around a search for the truth. Rather, the book centers around a quest for understanding, a coming to terms with the complexity of life. In death, life does not become more comprehensible for Mali. A few truths are revealed to him, but he remains baffled by the mortal world. Unable to reason his own death, nor comprehend the scale of violence in 1980 Sri Lanka. Shehan's approach to truth makes his novel a fascinating meditation on history and memory. Instead of using fiction to simplify or even falsify the record of history, Shehan uses it to present the Sri Lankan civil war in rich, disturbing complexity. There is no clean, linear narrative of the conflict. There are no answers only difficult, incongruent facts. As a history major, Shehan's message has a direct connection to the work that I do. His book warns me against the constant urge to construct a narrative around distantly related facts. Like Molly in his box of photographs, it's better to present naked truths to the world. As a society, we must push back against our very human desire to tell pleasant stories about ourselves. Instead, we must strive to present our histories in ways that unashamedly reveal our deficiencies, our paradoxical tendencies. Like Molly, only once we come to terms with who we are can we move forward. Now back to the interview. Yes, and I know that the leopard recurs in the book. And I just think if you watch leopards in the savannah in real life, you can see that they're at repose until they need to be. And then they just take off and you can't even follow them with your eye. So it's kind of like that. We conserve our energies and our imagination and we just take it where we have the idea. And then you might talk about the leopard. I do also want to say, as you were absorbing different either religious and spiritual traditions or also artistic ones, which were those that resonated perhaps the most? Like you just felt more attuned because they all are telling the same story, but in different ways. I'm glad you mentioned the leopard because again, no spoilers, but the leopard makes appearances throughout the book, but then towards the third act really makes a powerful appearance. And I do believe that the dead leopard is the hero of this book. And it's strange because I'm in Arugambe. I was in Yala. This is leopard country. I was on safari yesterday trying to track a leopard. I didn't see one. But yeah, I've always been fascinated by this idea that animals have souls. So Sri Lanka is a Buddhist country. You know, there's Hindus, there's Christians, there's Muslims who actually claim to be predominantly Buddhist and be the home of along with Myanmar, the home of Theravada Buddhism. But I've also traveled to Tibet and Ladakh and that's a different form of Buddhism. It's Mahayana Buddhism. And you go to those wonderful temples and they have this pantheon of humans and gods and demons and prethas and animal spirits and these wonderful mandalas that you can see where they chart out all the beings in existence, which that was not the tradition I was brought up with, but I was very inspired by that to know that, yeah, humans, we're not the be all and end all. We're just one state, but you could be in this state of consciousness, this kind of godly state, even a demonic state, but also the fact that all living creatures had souls and were affected by karma. And this is something we tend to forget, especially because animals are so tasty. So therefore, we have to justify slaughtering them on such a mass scale. So therefore, we want to believe that they don't count or they are somehow lesser souls than us. You know, you see why it's done. I'm not a big animal person either. I, I don't mind dogs, I don't mind pets, but I'm not a big animal rights person. But Always it seemed curious that if you really believe in the notion of Buddhism and rebirth and karmic energy, that surely all living beings, from plants to animals, should have sentience. The cat doesn't believe that it's a pet. The cat believes anyone who's had a cat 
that they are the center of the universe. I'm sure the cockroach believes that they are the center of the universe, just as the leopard does, just as we do. And back to the thing you said, how our body is in form, our view. But I think every living creature probably believes that they are the center because that's all they see. So I think that's why I explored that notion of talking animals and the idea that it's not just humans and their petty wars that matter, but all creatures suffer equally and experience joy. And therefore, it's convenient for us to say that certain things don't have souls, what, whatever soul is. But yeah, I got a lot of affection for the dead leopard. Maybe I'll give him his own book. That's yeah. a good idea. That's very interesting. Animal communication and it is so fascinating. You know, the bioluminescence and all these different ways they have of speaking or singing. And another animal or the crow man, I should say, you have a character called the crow man. Perhaps you know, explain this kind of spiritual holy man. I mean, I wish I was making it up, but this is quite prevalent in Sri Lankan society. Every politician has a chief of staff, has a bunch of drivers, they have advisors and all of that. They also have an astrologer. Most ministers have an astrologer and they consult the astrologer before they consult anyone else. And during the economic crisis, our finance minister wasn't consulting economists. They were consulting astrologers on to when to approach the IMF. This kind of absurdity is why it's so wonderful to be a novelist in Sri Lanka, because these stories, basically, they don't write themselves, but they're for the taking. But this belief in astrology, it's there, even though Sri Lanka, like I said, it's supposed to be a Buddhist society where Buddhism is about self-mastery and mindfulness and all of that. But we tend to have faith in these, many of them are probably charlatans. I don't know. I mean, I've visited a few and they're very charismatic and they are very good at reading you and telling you, they look at me and they know the kind of things they have to talk to me about. The idea that politicians have astrologers is charms that they hold during interviews or they have these things they wrap around their wrists that help them win elections and help them. It may seem quaint, but I suppose, look, in America, I guess every politician has to belong to a certain church and get a blessing and all of that. That spiritual element is always there. Except here, it's a bit more dark, a bit more on black magic. But yeah, it's quite prevalent in our society. Curses, love charms, all of these things. And I've gone along because I'm interested in the stuff. And one lady who I had a lot of respect for said, there's a lady standing behind you and she's helping you write this book. This stuff will send chills, but look, everyone's got a lady, a grandma or an auntie or a mom. So it's kind of an easy bet to say there's a lady standing behind you. Is there a female in your life he passed on? So I had this experience and I was just interested in looking at where they sat. And so the Cromant Cave, which I described, was an amalgamation of many holy people that I visited. But this is real. And a lot of politicians you find, especially we had a pandemic as the rest of the world did. And a couple of our really beloved leadership figures passed away. And everyone was saying, well, why did the good guys have to go? But there are a number of ministers who have survived many assassination attempts, many bombing attempts. And if you're being unkind, you'd say some of them perhaps deserve to be for the crimes they've done. But so this notion that there are demons or astrologers protecting some of our leaders. It's there as, as a trope. It's there as an urban legend in folklore. I mean, this book is just full of urban legends that I've kind of borrowed on. The crow man, he represents a link between the spirit world and the mortal human world. And he plays a huge part in the plot, especially with Mali Almeida. But these figures, they are very much alive and well in Sri Lanka. Except now after the economic collapse, all the astrologers who predicted we'd be okay are now silent. But I'm sure they're going to raise their heads again. Oh, yeah. That's another way I feel like misdirected storytellers get gainful employment. <laughs> I feel there's, there's yes, this artistry yes. involved. You touched on it, but we didn't go into it, that Molly is also a closeted gay. Just go into why you chose that or did it just seem natural? Maybe you had some inspiration from some journalists too? So that's something that if I was starting a novel today, Something I would really consider because I don't think Seven Moons is an LGBTQ novel and that was never the intention. I don't think I'm someone to write it. And now I would consider very carefully if I was writing from the perspective of a LGBTQ character, me being a cisgender heteronormative dude with two kids and a wife and how can I write from a positive gay man's point of view. But when I started this, I told you that I based it on real life unsolved murder cases. One of the most famous was Richard de Soysa, who is the epigraph that begins the novel. And Richard de Soysa was murdered in 89. He was a journalist. He was an activist. He wasn't a wolf dog. He's, he's really nothing like Mali if you talk to people who knew him. But that was the starting point because Richard de Soysa's murder, people still talk about it today because 
It happened in 89, and it was the first time an English-speaking Colombo middle-class guy was murdered. And up till then, if a journalist or an activist was murdered, it was usually a Sinhalese or Tamil-speaking person in the outstation whose name we don't even remember. But for the authorities or whoever it was to come after one of us, that sent a chill through all of Colombo. And I think even Richard, perhaps, I've spoken to many, he was a good 10 generation older than me. I was a teenager at the time, but I spoke to many of his friends. And they say Richard just felt that he was invincible, that no one was going to come after him because he was such a high profile. He was a news reader. He was an indie movie actor, a theater star. But the one thing, he also was a closet gay man. And even though I started with Richard Desoisa as my model for Mali Almeida, in the end, Mali Almeida was not a theater guy or an actor or news reader. Mali Almeida was a gambler and a war photographer. So I think his CV changed and maybe his personality also changed. But the one fact that remained was Richard Desoisa also had a few girlfriends, but he was also known to be at least bisexual. And I think the reason was even in liberal Colombo society in 1989, you couldn't really come out as a gay man. I'm sure that was true of 1989 in most places on the planet. Even today, I think, and we live in much more enlightened times, a lot of people will be cautious about coming out in Colombo society, even though many are. I think when the novel went through many revisions and reiterations, a lot of Richard de Soisa's biography got shed and Mali Almeida emerged as character. But that one detail stayed. The fact that he was a closet gay man, that he had a secret boyfriend and a public girlfriend. And I don't know how I would have changed that. You write by instinct and it just made sense that Mali Almeida... Because I also had to explain why was this privileged Colombo kid going to these very dangerous places and hanging out with these very dodgy characters. So one reason was perhaps ego. He found something he was very good at and he thought he was bearing witness and doing this great service. And also this idealism that he thought his photographs could change the world. But also I think as a closet gay man, he could express himself sexually. In the war zone, normal rules didn't apply. And he was quite a promiscuous gay man. You know, he had a boyfriend, but he was not very faithful to Didi. Also, I think this informed his world. He didn't believe there was an afterlife. He just believed in being a hedonist and enjoying his sexuality. And the only way he could do that was to go to these dangerous places where no one he knew would be watching. So therefore, I think all these reasons why he started out as a closet gay man and that remained the case. I don't know if I could revise it now and make him heterosexual, have the story work quite as well. So that was the reason. But you're right. Since then, I've been questioned because now that debate is alive and well, right? The cultural appropriation debate. Are we allowed to write novels from the perspective of characters of different sexualities, genders, and ethnicities? I think we are. I think that's the whole point of being a novelist, being a storyteller, is that you're allowed to inhabit other consciousnesses and see the world through other points of view. Of course, you have to do it well. You have to do it with respect. You have to do it with empathy and you have to do it responsibly. So if I had done it, and hopefully I've done it well, because I was very careful to do my research properly and get my story also read by my friends who are gay men and uh, get them to critique it as well. So I think you do need to do that, but I don't think we should be placing boundaries on what, because otherwise I have to write from a Sinhalese, Buddhist, Sri Lankan, middle-aged dude, which is quite boring. I'd like to explore different characters if I'm allowed to write more. So that was really the thinking. It, it wasn't a political decision. It just felt right for the character. And in the end, it was true to who the character was. And in the end, I think, I mean, with the plot as well, it gives another dimension. So that was the reason for it. Oh, yes. Well, I think absolutely novelists in particular, but all artists and actors and many are just to inhabit other roles. So I don't think it's something one should apologize as long as you do it well and respectfully. So yeah, you're right. Novelists are the ultimate non-binary because how can you inhabit dozens of characters? You're not going to be all of them unless you're just identity disorders. So it's the ultimate in non-binary not to be limited by our bodies. You have to create a whole world. I think that's actually the beauty of what the novelist has access to. And what you've done, we are introducing this new channel that's celebrating the points of the humanities and also what is their place in the new technologies of AI and other technologies? You mentioned ChatGBT because these new technologies can increase inequities. They're already doing that, bias, even racism, weaponized and sowing discord and all these things. What are your reflections on the importance of the humanities and say their role in perhaps forming a kind of framework philosophically, artistically to make sure that the technology serves the user's needs and not the technologist's needs? Oh, that's a big question. So humanities, let's set the context. In Sri Lanka, you did arts, 
because you couldn't get into med school, you couldn't get into law, you couldn't get into science or colors, so you did arts. That was my dad's generation, that's the perception. When I had to go to college, I went to college in New Zealand. My dad and my mom, I suppose, they, they were like, okay, what are you going to do with your life? I was going to study English and history. And they're like, what are you going to do with that? Now you better study commerce. And so I went and I studied the economics and accounting for my degree. But I took a few English classes and then I gradually, by my third year, I switched completely to a, to a humanities degree. And my dad didn't know this until graduation. I just said, yeah, I got A's and B's. And he was happy. And then at graduation, they're like, wait. Art of the film, European architecture, sociology. Is this economics or accounting or what is this? We all had to fight it. At least he didn't make me do medicine or law, which a lot of my generation, that was the default, right? And then I guess after I managed to find a job in advertising and now it's fine. I've justified the fact that I studied humanities, but yeah, that was the perception. But for me, I've always believed, firstly, best thing, the greatest gift you can give your children is books. That was why I was fortunate. I grew up in a war-torn country with lots of instability and uncertainty, but I grew up in a house full of books and VHS cassettes and now DVDs. That really informed who I was and my life choices. People ask me now, because after this prize, suddenly I have to be a political commentator and talk about Sri Lanka and what its future is and all of that. I just think that a lot of our problems, a lot of our ethnic divisions, the corruption, the way we look at each other, it can be solved in a generation. It can easily be solved. And I'm seeing it now. My kids are growing up with all three languages. We were never taught that. We were taught Sinhalese and English. The Tamil kids were taught Tamil and English. And that divide was there in our parents' generation. Now the kids grew up with all three languages and they grew up reading books. So I think the future is always been in new ideas. I graduated in the early 90s and we were all wondering what the world's going to turn out like and what our prospects are going to be. But I always think new ideas are what has led us forward. And new ideas, they come out of the humanities. They come out of understanding the classics, understanding psychology and philosophy and sociology and being able to think. Because you're right, I don't claim to be any commentator on the technology. I think I'm okay for a couple more books before the robots start writing Booker Prize winning novels. At the moment, I think we're okay because I've tried this technology and I think it's at the level of a junior copywriter who works really hard. The first draft and all of that, who knows where it's going to go. We are all reminded this technology is in its infancy. So it's conceivable that yeah, these things are going to be writing novels and writing pretty good novels. I think what will happen is more people will become writers. Just like more people are photographers now, more people are artists. I suppose when photography first came out, all the painters were up in arms saying, well, you know, our portrait business, our landscape business is going to go out of, and what's going to happen? But a hundred years later, more people are being employed as photographers. Also, art has evolved. After photography, then it gave birth to the Impressionism and Cubism. And the notion of art evolved because of the challenge. And I think maybe that's what's going to happen with writing. Perhaps an AI can write a formulaic detective thriller. And I'm a big fan of formulaic detective. I read Connelly and Lee Child and all that. But you know what I mean? They have their Dan Browns. They have their set points and their set tropes and all that. So maybe the technology can learn then and replicate that. But I don't think it's going to produce a Margaret Atwood or a Salman Rushdie. I think the real challenge is to write stuff that hasn't been written before. And that's what we're all trying to do. So the technology can replicate what's been done before. But the real novels that are going to move us, the stories that are going to move us are the stuff that hasn't been done before. And that's where I think writers come in. And that's where an understanding of the humanities and being able to come up with new ideas rather than just replicate new ideas or rehash new ideas. I think that's where the future is. It's a bit scary at the moment and it will be scary for the next five, 10 years. But after a while, it'll just become another tool like the camera is, like Photoshop is. Maybe more people will be able to come up with the first draft, but to come up with a great masterpiece, I think we're still going to need human brains. I hope so. And I think there's still room for originality. Because we think everything's been done, but I think it's just a fraction. There's lots of ideas out there. I'm hopeful. I'm not too worried. And if this chat GBT will help me, instead of spending seven years on a novel, if I can knock out a novel in seven weeks, I'll be happier. More writing that I can do. Maybe as research or maybe as the first job, but definitely the novels that you write, yeah. I don't think it is ever going to be achieved by chat GPT. And maybe those novels written by chat GPT, we don't even have to read them because the AI can read it for us and we just... <laughs> take it off our lips read that so as you think about the future you mentioned for all the conflict that Sri Lanka has experienced it's also very rich in biodiversity I believe one of the richest in the world 
And as you think about the environment and the climate crises, and also the importance of the environmental humanities and telling those stories, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? If young people are reading, I, I would just settle for that. We're talking specifically about Sri Lanka. I'd like to see young people reading in all three languages, not just the language that your parents talk. If we have more books in Sinhala and Tamil and in English, because the English books get the attention, but one, if they're reading, there's nothing wrong with the screens. I've got a few screens myself. I'm keeping them away from my children, but I still don't think the act of reading, the act of imagination of putting yourself in someone else's shoes, I think still the book holds domain over all the other art forms. So I would like to see firstly that, and in my small way, I'm starting initiatives that build more libraries, not just in Colombo, Gorka, and the urban centers, but around the country. If kids have access to books in all languages, I think this could solve a lot of our problems. With the environment, I think there's a lot more awareness, even though we are as vulnerable to climate change and to the dwindling forest cover, the endangered species. These problems are all, all there, but at least there's a lot more awareness of it than there was when I was growing up. What I draw comfort in is, I think, look, I'm Gen X, not quite boomer, not quite millennial Gen Z. So we are the apathetic generation. We just sit there and write cynical novels and curse everyone. But I think the kids... The Gen Z's, the millennials who we saw on the streets last year, toppling a government. Those guys, I just really hope that their idealism is not stamped up because they really believe in a better Sri Lanka and in preserving our natural heritage and in building the country up. And I hope that idealism survives and that it transforms into action. It doesn't get blighted out of them like it did with our generation. But the challenge is immense. And tiny country like Sri Lanka is not good in global climate. It's been called climate boiling now. I think, yeah, you're right. Sri Lanka has a great heritage and it's small enough. It's not vast and chaotic like our neighbors. So India, Pakistan, Bangladesh to turn things around. It's going to take a huge effort, but I think we are small enough that we can set an example. I would just say more books and putting more kids into leadership positions rather than the same old men who have been making mistakes. I think that would be what I would hope for Sri Lanka. Yeah, I think that no example is too small. You look at a small country like Bhutan and they're carbon negative. And I don't know where Sri Lanka is on that, but that is a great example. When I heard that there was even one, I think there's a few now carbon ne negative countries. That's amazing. So it gives us something to aim for, even if we fail to hit the mark. Thank you, Shehan Karunatelika, for sharing your imaginative world and inviting readers to examine the big questions and imagine the afterlife, the importance of journalism and the humanities, and how we can enact change in the world. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Sam Myers and Aaron Goldberg. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.